the nonprofit system emerges and basically it's like all about professionalizing social movement work. And so it's like, you know, people who work there have higher degrees, they're more likely to be white, um, upper class, et cetera. And this kind of like new model we get that's like, instead of making change by building mass movements of, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are um, experiencing being on the bottom, um, you build change by like having a think tank that comes up with a really cool lawsuit idea. Like it's an article <laughs> in the New York Times. Like, Today, it's just Artie and myself, Beatrice, and we are joined by a very special guest. Please welcome to the panel, Dean Spade. Hello, Dean, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for brief background, uh, Dean is a lawyer, writer, activist, and an associate professor of law at Seattle University. Listeners, you may have heard of Dean through his previous involvement with the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, or as a result of his extensive body of work on subjects such as transphobia and education, disability, the limits of law-centered advocacy, abolition, bureaucratic mediation of identity, <laughs> queer liberation centered in racial and economic justice. Now, that was quite a long list, I know. But even so, I feel like, Dean, I'm not doing your body of work justice. We are huge fans here at the panel. Thank you. It is mutual. I love your podcast. We love to hear that. Um, so... Now, Dean, you have a new book called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, which is out this week from Verso. Um, Basically, the book concisely presents a comprehensive primer on all aspects of mutual aid. But most importantly, Dean, you get into and address a lot of the dangers, obstacles and pitfalls that projects and groups might encounter. Do you think you could tell the listeners briefly a little bit about the book and why it's so important to have it available as a resource? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been doing mutual aid activism for 20 years or something. Um, and what what really led me into like eventually writing this book is that in 2016, when Trump was elected, I saw that there was like this moment where so many people were newly mobilizable. Like a lot of people were really scared and angry about things that were happening and were like ready to actually dive into um, different kinds of activism. And then what I saw was just like the, the mythologies we have about social movements and social change in our society were like really misleading people. So it's like, give money to the ACLU or Planned Parenthood and like maybe someone will sue Trump and that'll resolve it. Um, or right. like post a bunch of stuff on social media. Like it was just like in the ACLU did this thing where they posted like, click here to pledge to defend the constitution. <laughs> like this is like literally telling people, it's, it's really moving people away from being mobilized and towards these like dead ends of things that don't actually involve them in their communities or in supporting anyone or stopping anything. Or um, So I saw that and I was like this, just feeling my frustration about how when people are nearly mobilizable, mutual aid is the on-ramp to social movement participation, right? It's like when people are in that state, they want to help somebody or they need help and they like ideally can like land in some kind of local group in their community where they both are directly engaging with the thing that they're worried about or experiencing and where they're then like learning new solidarities and finding out more dimensions of the problem that they didn't know about and getting connected to like the other issues in their town that they weren't aware of. So like they're working on housing court stuff, but now they're like showing up at the transit protest and they're like hating police and like all the, you know, in an ideal world, <laughs> yeah. we like find homes for our mutual aid work. And we also like 
are building this like very robust social movement ecology. And that was, that's not what happens when people are like, Oh, I just, you know, buy the right t-shirt. I go to the women's March once a year or most of the social media. So, um, so that, so I created this uh, website called um, big door brigade. That was just like a, like kind of being a mutual aid toolkit. Like how do you start projects? What are examples of projects? What are the, what are some of the tools people use to start projects and whatever. Um, and then, um, you know, I like wrote an article trying to like also do kind of a primer on mutual aid. And then um, when this recent round of like sort of mutual aid visibility emerged during coronavirus, um, you know, earlier in 2020, um, Versa Press. I had I had worked with Miriam Kaba a little bit in the background of this event she did with AOC about mutual aid. And then uh, Versa Press reached out to Miriam and said, "Will you um, write a book on mutual aid?" And Miriam said, "No." Make Dean do it. He's already got all the stuff planned. <laughs> so, as usual, we do what Miriam Kava tells us. Um, she is, you know, really. So, I dropped the other things I was working on and um, put together this book. And, you know, my hope for the book is, like you said, just like the first part of it is like, what is mutual aid? What is its role in movements? How does it help us imagine another world? What are common pitfalls? And then the second half of it is a lot like the actual, some actual on the ground tools you need in your mutual aid group to help it be strong and last and be really participatory and democratic. And so just like, what are some of the things around decision-making and around conflict and how to handle money and just like some of the stuff that really trips up mutual aid groups. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's, I think since the George Floyd uprising, a lot of people, particularly on social media have been really drawn into mutual aid. And as you you said, it's, it's a really good on-ramping um, tool for organizing. People come, they want to directly involve in, you know, supporting their community through the pandemic. And, you know, it's a great way to get them mad about other stuff that they didn't even realize that they were angry about. Um, but there has been this sort of situation, shall we say, where in the wake of sort of the social media explosion of like mutual aid projects getting a lot of visibility, um, there's been one, you know, a lot of increase in the like social literacy of what mutual aid means. But I think there's also been a lot of confusion and co-optation. And we've seen stuff like, you know, mutual aid projects that have means testing, uh, eligibility requirements or stuff as blatant as like in late August, Andrew Cuomo announced a quote unquote mutual aid project. <laughs> Sorry, laughing at this. A mutual aid project between Connecticut and New York, um, <laughs> which would basically be like coordinated training exercises for police and other interstate <laughs> well, agencies like Homeland Security. Point, point of order. This was actually last year. So oh, it was, was even before. Year. Yeah, it was even before, I think, um, broader popularization, I think, of like the use of the term mutual totally. aid um, and did. Yes. the I mean, that program was quite literally to help. Connecticut and New York state-based Homeland Security, uh, state police, and uh, what is it, National Guard um, oh people work together. So, I yeah, don't know. that's mutual D aid for sure. Dean, does that sound like mutual aid to you? <laughs> oh yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind. I mean, this is, <laughs> I, I've actually—that's interesting. I didn't know the broader context of that, but I had heard that term used in passing more recently about national about like. The, about different governors asking the National Guard for mutual aid. I um, It's fascinating, too, that this term is an anarchist term. You know, there's a lot of ways right. to talk about <laughs> what we're calling mutual aid right in this, in this conversation. Like, there's so many, you know, I was actually recently talking to some friends who are, like, feminists in their 70s who've done, like, international solidarity work their whole lives, lesbians, and they're like, 
you know, they've done so much mutual aid work, but they've never used the term mutual aid for it. Like there's, you know, I mean, lots of, it's in every single movement and, and different terms are used to talk about that, what that kind of work is, what this kind of like work where we help each other survive with a shared understanding of, um, you know, the fact that the system is producing the harms and or making them worse or whatever. But um, but to see that term mainstream is fascinating that it happens to be the anarchist <laughs> term that's right. mainstreaming. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been really surprised too. I think that one of the co-optations that I, I see a lot in addition to this like bizarre police use of it is the, um, I feel like the media wants to turn it into volunteerism, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like it's just wants to, it wants to turn it into like, look, nice people doing nice things for each other, this, and, and totally take the, the threateningness out of it, you know, like that it's not actually oppositional to existing systems, that it's not about building something that replaces those systems, that it's not tied to movements that have deep root causes of demands for like drastic transformation of, you know, ending wealth and poverty and war and police and all this stuff. And so it's like, that I think is one of, you know, the media either ignores mutual aid or it, or it, um, it m- tries to make it into like something that's like neoliberal or privatizing, um, disaster mm-hmm. relief, um, or it somehow collaborates with criminalizing it. You know, like that's like sort of the extreme version where, you know, where we somehow turn, you know, the no more deaths medical camp into some kind of, you know, thing that has to be rated, right? Like, or the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program is a terrorist operation or whatever, you know, these different right. historical and contemporary examples. Um, but yeah, I feel that the um, the volunteerism one is actually really, really probably the most common that I've seen during this COVID era um, proliferation of mutual aid projects. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's sort of that, la- that like portrayal as, as volunteerism is quite paternalistic because it's almost like the media like perception is that, oh, look at these like, you know, small individual actors who are just right. coming together autonomous, autonomously and imitating the structure of these well-funded charity organizations. Right, it, exactly. Yeah. It's very condescending, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, you know, you could we could uh, call it volunteerism, but also I think just the conflation of mutual aid to sort of uh, what is broadly understood in like the neoliberal landscape as or like in just, you know, broad liberal society as like charity work, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, actually, maybe we can get that into that actually because um, the like pretty early on, I think it's uh, chapter two in your book, Dean. Um, you, I, I think, do a, a really good job, of, and I know you've uh, you've um, actually elaborated on this a lot in some of your other um, work and uh, other articles that you've published. But getting into sort of like I guess the differences between what a mutual aid project consists of and then what the sort of uh, charity or uh, nonprofit complex constitutes yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i'm happy to talk Mm -hmm. about that yeah so i think this is probably one of the most important um distinctions for people like living in just like typical u.s society of course is that um we have this context of charity which is um where you know benevolent rich people um you know slash the government um sort of manage poor people by providing you know very highly stigmatized social services and poor relief in various forms. And this, you know, I, I always think about, you know, the kind of origins that um, Francis Fox Piven and, um, and Clower talk about in regulating the poor kind of classic Marxist texts about the um, origins of poor relief that mm. it was really about, you know, there are, there are theories that in these moments where lots and lots of people get displaced um, by um, changes in, um, in technology and in um, production um, as capitalism develops and then and ongoing through through capitalism, we see you know this this crisis for capitalism where it's like oh my god, what if all these poor displaced people like actually you know push back against rich people because of course they <laughs> outnumber the rich people, and so we have to 
uh, we have to manage them. And so they do that by simultaneously criminalizing poverty and begging and providing like very meager, very stigmatizing and very punitive, um, limited poor relief. Um, that is, you know, at the, at, in its earliest origins was like the workhouse or the poor house where you had to like go live there and, um, and like, you know, be worked to death essentially. Um, and, and, uh, and now I would say that we see this sort of same thing, like homeless shelters being like prisons and it being almost impossible to maintain any kind of public benefits because they're constantly sending you through these eligibility criteria um, right. and you're getting kicked off all the time. And, um, you know, the, the, and, and there's this kind of sense in Piven Clarett's work that it regulates not only the poor people, but it regulates the rest of the laborers because it makes being poor and needing poor relief so demeaned that you'll work at any wage under any conditions in order to avoid that um, stigmatized role. And it's part of the broader story that is so visible in U.S. society that like, you know, people are rich because they've worked really hard and they're really smart mm-hmm. and people are poor because they're like morally bankrupt and have bad sexuality and are not <laughs> smart and don't have personal responsibility. And so th- these these norms are inside pretty much all social services. It's like, well, you can't, you you might qualify for housing in, after four years in the waiting list if you're sober the entire time. And if you do have children or if you don't have children or if you are undocumented or if you're not undocumented, like all these, there's a kind of framework around um, both moralism and a sense of like, you know, the, the job of social services and charities being to determine who is the deserving and undeserving poor right. and to maintain this idea that the reason you're poor or don't have a house or whatever is because like there's something fundamentally wrong with you and you didn't participate correctly and the rich people just are like really good at budgeting and really good at parenting. Um, and so, and you have to take these classes, you know, just this kind of framework, you have to go to a work fair job that's um, demeaning and possibly dangerous, et cetera. Um, and so this kind of whole framework, there's a, because it's so common um, and it has so much paternalism in it, it's also like they get people who are giving the aid know more about what the people who ha- you know need the aid need. Um, so we see this in disaster relief, the kind of like let's remake your city after the hurricane and, and mm-hmm. you know make it better and go have charter schools. I'm thinking of New Orleans right now, of course, after Katrina. But this kind of um, this level of paternalism is really easy to like just have in us from living in the society when we go to do mutual aid, so that you see some mutual aid projects end up, you know, using those kinds of eligibility criteria about, you know, sobriety in order to be let into this squatted housing or, um, or using, uh, you just see this stuff come up. Um, and it's not just because like the, if the mutual aid project has a lot of people who are upper class and they're serving for people, it's, it's actually can be inside any community. These ideas mm-hmm. are very, we've all lived through the drug war moralism. We've all lived through heteropatriarchal ideas about family formation norms or what's the proper sexuality or what responsibility looks like. So, I think this charity mutual aid distinction is essential because mutual aid projects, like the fundamental story of mutual aid is people are in need, not because there's something wrong with them or the way they are or live needs to be changed, but because there's something wrong with systems that concentrate wealth and, um, and produce poverty and misery and, you know, harm. And so it's a really different framework. And, and part of that is like, everyone should have everything and there should be no strings attached and no eligibility criteria. Like that's a mutual aid concept. Hell yeah. yeah. That's the opposite of nonprofits. Oh, and one more thing I could say, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, but <laughs> no, we're please. here for it. Um, the, the, the nonprofitization piece is that, um, so this charity framework, you know, exists going way back to the beginnings of capitalism's origin when so many people were displaced from subsistence agriculture, but the nonprofit piece comes in really as a response to the radical and very transformative social movements of the 1960s and 70s, right? All over the world, we're seeing an anti-colonial movement, a set of movements at that time in the United States that looks like anti-colonial, anti-racist, um, feminist, et cetera, movements that are really disruptive. There's like intense, you know, rioting happening in every city in the United States during 19, September 1968. There's this huge uprising of Black people against white supremacy. Um, 
and there's, you know, revolution is in the air. And um, according to Pippin and Cloward, at this time, what you see is, oh, I'm, I'm going to stop on that, but uh, uh, we'll go back to Pippin and Cloward. But basically, you see these like really transformative movements of this period. And in the backlash to that, and sort of like starting with Reagan, but going on, we see um, during that period, we see, of course, like COINTELPRO and like the deep criminalization of people who are doing this radical transformative work. So we see like the assassination and incarceration of people from the American Indian movement and um, Black Panther Party and all of these important groups. And we also see the development of this nonprofit system in which um, the story, as Dylan Rodriguez puts it, is like, if you do transformative work that could get to the root causes, you'll be criminalized. And if you do work that kind of helps maintain the status quo and manage the social problems being produced by capitalism, white supremacy, um, you can get a grant. Mm-hmm. And so it's like <laughs> this kind of, the nonprofit system emerges and basically it's like all about professionalizing social movement work. And so it's like, you know, people who work there have higher degrees, they're more likely to be white, um, upper class, et cetera. And this kind of like new model we get that's like, instead of making change by building mass movements of, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are um, experiencing being on the bottom, um, you build change by like having a think tank that comes up with a really cool lawsuit idea, like it's an <laughs> article in the New York Times, like all these this deep turn to elite strategies and to depoliticize social services that um, are in the charity model. Like those are the things you can get funded, and like mass organizing is the thing that like you can't get funded in the, in the um, nonprofit system. And so basically, the nonprofit system is like the government and philanthropy get to decide what strategies can move forward, and it's just strategies that feel good to those. Mm-hmm. institution. So that's part of a lot what this book is about is just giving people like the 101 on like the charity history and the um and the nonprofit and how it's different from mutual aid. And I have to say, you know, I teach law students and just this week we were reading the um the really important book The Revolution Will Not Be Funded mm. edited by Insight and every time we get to that in class, the students are so bummed because they were like I was told <laughs> that if I worked at a nonprofit then I would do the good work that would save the world. And really having to examine like how that's a containment strategy, not so that we can decide that nonprofits are bad or individual people in them are bad, but just so that we can actually see like that that's not going like having a professionalized social movement is just means that rich people decide what happens in it. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, one of the things. Well, that at least they're the law students who are reading those right, texts. That's true. <laughs> to be to, to be totally frank, I mean, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people don't even get exposed to that sort of crest falling uh, moment when they're in in law school. No. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's one of the things that that you talk about in the book that's like a really important, um, you know, component in the concept of like the charity model of disability or you know just the charity model of public assistance, shall we say, is the sort of. Uh, reinforcement of like a hierarchy of deservingness. And we've talked a lot about how this is incredibly problematic when it's applied to like protesters, say, and you you designate who's nonviolent and who's violent. And, th- and that sort of like justifies harm on the group deemed violent, which, you know, sort of as you as you say, ties into like this broader project of, of separating out groups and making sure that the elites feel comfortable in their charity to avoid taxes, to support their pet causes that they've decided, you know, are are worthy. And part of part of what that does as a, as a social reproductive function is it sort of reassures them that the problem isn't actually capitalism. But the problem is, you know, people who use drugs uh, have a hard time with housing. Not the fact that the example you use is uh, that there's a problem with the housing market, right? Well, one question I have coming into this this interview with you guys because of how um, deep I think your thinking is about the history of poor relief and managing poor people. I, I just, you know, it's interesting to live through a moment. So like COVID happens, 
tons of people lose their jobs. And we see like the stimulus check and, you know, ex- expansion of unemployment that happened briefly. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, according to the pivot and cloud theory, when you, ha- when you have this many people displaced, when you, you know, it's, it's, it, it, to stabilize capitalism, you, they're going to have to provide some kind of poor relief and they have to do it through deserving this framework. So like on mm-hmm. you know, undocumented people aren't eligible and people who, um, you know, so many different kinds of people who aren't eligible, et cetera. Um, it cuts out people and all the evidence that the, you know, PPP loans didn't go to black owned businesses and the fact that they created a giant slush fund for corporations and all those pieces, um, who gets bailed out, who doesn't get bailed out, all the things that we know about, um, relief systems in general, so that they're so racialized and gendered and, um, and, and, you know, moments of looting for, um, for the rich. But I, I guess, and one thing that I feel like I don't hear people talking about enough is like how the PPP loans are basically like, instead of just giving people relief, they're doing it through businesses and how like absolutely <laughs> right. like inefficient that is. And it's so much work for the businesses and it's so confusing and people can't tell if they're going to have to pay it back. And so much of it isn't reaching workers. And it's, I mean, all of that is just completely wild. But um, I guess like I'm fascinated about a, the fact that the relief did end like really early. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're in like a much more serious much more serious economic crashes, like, uh, you know, um, coming towards us and, and happening. Um, and I'm like, is Pivot and Cloward's theory, like, still totally <laughs> relevant? Like, do, like, have they found ways to manage us that won't require very much relief? Like, but at the same time, I do think that the, that part of how we can explain the uprising this, this summer against white supremacy and police violence is in part that a lot of people are out of work and able to participate. And also that a lot of people have participated in mutual aid projects and gotten more politicized in the months just preceding that. So I think that there's, I mean, I'm not sure if those are the explanations, but I think they have something to do with why those up, the uprising was so significant, given that, of course, um, there's nothing new about anti-Black police violence. Um, and so just curious what you all, like how you all are chewing on, like A, the fact that the relief hasn't been renewed, um, and B, like uh, whether, how this is, is this about, managing the poor in the same ways that it has been? Or do you think this is different than like the, the other periods that we can see where relief expands um, to stabilize capitalism? Well, I think in a certain sense, it seems like um, obviously it's always always imperfect to model reality off of um, uh, like uh, off of or through uh, the lens of a theory, for example. But if you were <laughs> if we were going through the um, like that sort of, you know, theory of how, you know, government must be reactive in order to, uh, you know, keep basically, you know, keep the people from like completely dismantling its power structures essentially yeah um, to, to prevent the central park tribunal well yeah i mean i think uh, <laughs> i can't remember if it's in uh if it's in uh your new book dean or in uh one of your earlier uh articles but you you mentioned i think at some point that you know one form of like co-optation that that uh, these sort of necessary actions can come in is in the role of like say a like the benevolent government mm-hmm. uh, situation or something where like you, you we, we say like oh look we're we're, lo- we're looking for some like better form of government that would then be uh, more satisfa- satisfactory for our needs or something and that people can easily get swept up in saying oh look like our like our agitation or our organizing or our mutual aid um, like was so 
uh, successful and was so much of a threat that they had to respond with their own. But then um, I think, as you like rightly point out, those things always end after mm-hmm. a certain point. And if anything, it's just that this, <laughs> I think, you know, that response clearly did happen. It was, uh, it was swift. It was an inadequate, it was inadequate. It was really poorly targeted and uh, just, I don't know, like Kafka esque neoliberal uh, strange policy in the form of the cares act, but it did, it did arrive. And I think if anything, the problem is they just like pulled it off too quick, mm-hmm. which in a way, you know, maybe will be, um, you know, as, you know, as a you fatal point out, flaw or, error. Yeah. or, or, you know, a, a productive flaw right. or error or error, because, you know, as you point out, like we are, we do seem to be tumbling quite quickly into an even more aggressive, uh, economic freefall for a lot of people and uh, even more dire consequences quite immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also so like so much the deserving and undeserving thing that, that we've been talking about too. Just like, I, I think just the, the kind of, it's like when you think about it as like a pressure valve, it's like, it's totally fine for like tons and tons and tons of people to be evicted, especially if it's disproportionately black women, but Oh no, we're gonna have an eviction moratorium. If it seems like for a minute, it might be the people <laughs> we've already decided are deserving like that. We can really, really see like that. Yeah. That pressure valve happening. Yeah. Right. And of course, the burden is always on the individual to like jump through the administrative hoops and uh, cross their T's and dot their I's and meet all the eligibility requirements. And this is like ultimately like a lot of unpaid labor that's, you know, put on the individual in order to like access their uh, basic needs. Right. And I think, you know, in a a lot of ways, like we've seen um, we've seen decades of public policy, which has sort of been influenced by the framework of welfare reform, which is really discouraged, like any possible development of like money follows the person person uh, programs like SSDI, where you're giving funds directly to individuals to, you know, like spend on whatever they please. Like the predominant mode of funding that people prefer in the policy sphere or have preferred in the past 20 years has really been like, how can we pass this money through a private company, a charity or through an institution, right? And it's it's sort of caught up in this paternalistic framework, which prevents this money from being recirculated into mutual aid efforts as well. And one of the things that I think was really successful about the unemployment insurance and possibly like, you know, uh, is part of the reason that a lot of people survived this summer is the fact that people were able to redirect that unemployment money to mutual aid projects, not just participate, but um, because they had the time off work, but actually they had their rent met. They, they had like, they were able to put money towards their student loans and take a little bit extra and put it towards, you know, making sandwiches or writing letters. Or, at least, yeah. at least those who were able to jump through the administ- the considerable administrative uh, hoops and burdens uh, that, a lot of state unemployment systems have, but yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like right now the real, the real um, sort of game is um, like, does not matter how many people die, how many people get sick, how many people become, you know, evicted and live on the streets. Because the most important thing is to not shatter that idea that you know working sets you free. Basically, you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I, I know so many people who've had this experience. I keep hearing the story from my students about their partner, or about their friend, or you know, people I know who work at restaurants or whatever. That basically, somebody like was getting unemployment, and then they they got a job that they were like, okay, I'll try this, and they went there, and the, the COVID risk was so high, there was no support, and they knew that that it was dangerous, and so they right. quit that, and now they can't get unemployment because they quit a job, right? Like so, <laughs> so many people I know are having that where they were like just trying to figure out how to work and realizing it was really dangerous, and so this the, the it's basically like 
work and die or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as usual, right. There's just another level of like, you will just forcing people to work under dangerous conditions. And I, I think about this so much with the service industry and who's being forced back to work um, and can't get um, unemployment or can't get the benefits of PPP pay if they're, once their bosses decide they want them back. And then like, of course, we're not surprised to see that it's disproportionately um, people of color and low income people who are getting COVID because they are forced to work in these industries, you know, so it's just so intense. Right, exactly. I mean, one of the things that maybe we can sort of like move on to here, because I do feel like this this sort of fits under the same umbrella of like the uh, dignity of risk, shall we say, because in a lot of ways, that's what uh, a lot of the narrative on COVID is trying to forward is the dignity of being a, fr- a frontline worker, the the bravery of being a um, frontline worker, whether that's at a grocery store or in a hospital, right, with no discussion of whether, uh, you know, either of those jobs is like a necessary in-person function, of course. Or whether the reason that you're in that line of work is economic coercion of different types, but yeah. Exactly. And or that those have been the, the least, like the lowest paid jobs we're now naming essential, but they still remain the lowest paid jobs. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, like the, the last time I was in the hospital, one of the things I like to do uh, to pass the time is like, talk to everybody about their job conditions, which, you know, the past two times I've been in the hospital under COVID has been a really hot topic. As soon as I start talking to one person, I get a little procession of people who want to come and just like vent and complain because um, it's so horrible. I mean, you have like, in particular, like a lot of the transport workers that I were talking, I was talking to, they're like, we never know what the patient has that we're getting, right? Like my PPE is three weeks old. I'm not getting any hazard pay. Um, you know, I don't qualify for the special shuttle bus home. So I'm still riding the subway and I'm like transporting people who are going to like emergency surgery and also transporting COVID patients. And in a certain capacity, this feels absolutely absurd, right? This is not the right way to be doing it. And like, you know, and my recourse, right? What's my recourse? I sue the hospital, right? Like I can't afford to sue my employer. And and one of the things that we were talking about when we were sort of emailing back and forth, setting this up was like, you have a lot of work that you've done that talks about sort of the limits of legal rights and framing, you know, fights for liberation as like legal battles. I was wondering if we could sort of like get into this whole mythology of legal rights that we were going back and forth about. Yeah. Yeah, I'd probably say like the central idea of my, of my everything I've worked on in my life has been about the like this lie, <laughs> you know, like that, um, <laughs> that changing the law changes people's lives. And I think I, in many ways, experienced that in the grassroots activism I was doing in my teens and 20s in New York City under Giuliani and like the, for different reasons. But then I think when I um, encountered critical race theory, I was like, oh, this explains what I've been trying to understand about like why I don't think gay marriage is going to free gay people and why my biggest concern is the cops and all the different kinds of things I was working on because critical race theory is an account of why um, civil rights law didn't end white supremacy and that the conditions of black life in the United States have actually worsened during the period when racism has purportedly been illegal, right? Is that actually like the criminal punishment system drastically expanded during this period and the racial wealth gap continues to expand. I mean, right. So that there's this like question, like, wait, if we're being told all the time, that civil rights law is the model of freedom in the United States mm-hmm. with like black people's lives as the purported example. This is a story, a, you know, fake progress narrative about how black freedom happened because laws were passed. And then of course the brutal heartbreaking reality is that these laws um, didn't do that and that they created a cover story for the, you know, we, we moved from having explicit apartheid state in the United States to having still an apartheid state that's de facto. And so right. for me, that was a really pivotal moment, especially because 
you know, I've spent a lot of my life in the queer and trans movement, um, pushing back against what, you know, what emerged starting in the eighties and especially the nineties, which is this kind of very conservative, um, gay and lesbian rights framework mm-hmm. that now somewhat includes trans people that, um, you know, was a huge departure from kind of like the anti-police, um, you know, queer uprisings of the seventies and, uh, the, and late sixties. Um, and it, it's, you know, been this iteration that we see as kind of now it's like the only visible queer politics, you know, that, that's basically like, People should be able to get married and join the military and call the police and have hate crimes laws be used to prosecute <laughs> and, um, you know, be free under anti-discrimination laws, which, of course, we all know if we cared about racism at all, don't work. And if we cared about ableism at all, don't work, you know, because they've been on the books for years and years for, um, you know, making those things illegal. But, um, but yeah, so, so I, so, so much of my work has been about, like, especially as the trans, um, you know, work surfaced and increasingly mainstream being like, hey, let's not follow that gay and lesbian rights path that won't yield relief from the actual conditions facing trans people, which is like intense criminalization, um, deportation, poverty, et cetera, because those um, kinds of civil rights measures are really about um, recuperating the images of Mm -hmm. um, institutions that essentially were delegitimized by the 60s and 70s movements, like marriage, the police, the military. um, And, you know, I would say more generally like capitalist economy and so each of those that are each of those reforms um you know that are about saying oh no our group wants in to that very important (laughs) dignifying institution if trans people can join the military then that'll help us with our severe unemployment Um, Mm -hmm. and it's such an important job it's like this is a you know patriotic um it's it's patriotic messaging it's hiding the realities of what military service is like and the brutal nightmare of it and of course that the u.s military is like as has been said by many, um, the largest source of violence in the world and the largest polluter right. in the world. And so it's this very like deep thing because people really think like that law, changing the law is what is what will change things. And and people also <laughs> avail themselves all like that that's illegal, so it must not, it shouldn't be happening. Where of mm-hmm. course, like if we look at policing at all, we know that policing policing is totally lawless, immigration right. enforcement is totally lawless. So it's really intense because it's a very, very deep attachment and the attachment is really centered around a story about anti-Black racism that the United States really revolves its self-narrative around. And um, this plays out in our movements in a lot of ways, like the way I talked about earlier where people are like, well, the ACLU will sue Donald Trump and that'll resolve everything. (laughs) And of course we see that like the Muslim ban, like there's, you know, several suits that win and then suddenly nope, it's the Trump administration figured out how to do it in a way by adding Venezuela that it doesn't, you know. So it's like the, um, the, the, the A, the like uh, lost opportunities for mobilizing strategies that would really work, which are grassroots people power-based strategies and the kind of turn towards the elite institutions relentlessly to, to, to like receive relief, which I think also is like in the U.S., like living in what I would consider an authoritarian society, like, a very deep desire for like a mommy daddy state that will like come in and resolve <laughs> our conflicts through courts and like rescue us and like, or the, or the police, like if I'm having a hard time with you that I could call the police on you or the teacher, like this sense that like someone outside will come resolve and deliver because of some pure ideal. And like, it's just so heartbreaking because of course the law is entirely just like a, a, a set of fictions designed to like maintain white supremacy and capitalism and heteropatriarchy and all the things we're trying to dismantle. And so I think for me, this is really like a central piece, like both, like I spent a lot of time trying to get social movement lawyers to approach um, 
their roles very differently and move away from mm-hmm. their belief that the law is what changes lives and their belief in law and legal systems and in neutral principles. And then, cause it's all like so sad cause it doesn't work. Right. Like even, I think one of the main ways we see this, like I gave some of the queer examples, but we can really see that like legal changes that look like they're supposed to support well-being of like downtrodden, you know, and marginalized and targeted people are always about legitimizing and stabilizing the system that allows them to continue mm-hmm. to be extracted from. So like people talk about like the National Labor Relations Act or like all the other things that happened in kind of the New Deal period. Like those things weren't about like, we're finally going to help poor people and workers have a great life. They were about like limiting the disruptive potential of the <laughs> like really serious labor movement that yeah. was happening there and movements of poor people and also um, limiting the ways in which a laborer could um, could try to seek redress uh, for what happened to them at work and limiting the ways that people or could organize in their workplace, right? Um, I mean, I could give tons of examples of this, but, you know, obviously the conversation happening today where it's like the endless numbers of reforms to policing that have happened supposedly is that police violence and um and police racism, of, of course, have all just expanded police budgets and and done nothing to change the like ever expanding reach of police and criminalization into um, people's lives. And so, just trying to move people to that basic move, like that basic like wait, when systems say they've fixed the problem, <laughs> they might actually just be in, ensuring their better ability to do the problem. I want to give one more example of that, which I really love this book. <laughs> Um, called The Law is a White Dog by Colin Diane. And in the book, she talks about prisoner rights litigation in the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s, right? There was, you know, all these amazing movements that drew attention to political prisoners and more and more people in the United States were thinking about the prison in a way that was delegitimizing it. There's all this prisoner rights litigation about like everything from like prison nutrition to prison healthcare to solitary mm-hmm. confinement. And her argument, which I think is dead on, is that it actually codified the worst conditions. So if you win a suit that says they have to give this many calories to the prisoners, then they're mm-hmm. never going to give more than that number of calories ever right, again. Or exactly. if you win a suit that right. says they they have to have a due process hearing in order to put you in solitary, they change it to, and they change its name to administrative segregation and then they can do it whenever they want, like for your safety. Like literally every single, um, every what, what it does is it establishes floors of brutality and torture instead of, um, Right. And so that's that, to Absolutely. me, like these, these examples, yeah. you know, they're, they're endless in, in us law and I'm sure more broadly, but they, um, this shaking ourselves from this mythology is really hard and it's, it's very present in every movement I'm part of. And it's a lot of what my work has been about. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a important, um, I guess, rhetorical intervention, mm-hmm. uh, like a structural tactical intervention to, uh, to push for. And also clearly, you know, um, re- I think reflects a lot of the, the same kind of structural, uh, issues or quibbles that we're talking about when we talk about like the charity industrial complex or, mm-hmm. uh, nonprofit, the nonprofitization of political activity in the United States over the last few decades. Um, but also I think in, uh, you know, not, not to, you just gave a, a number of incredible examples, but in, so not to bring in yet another one, but you have this great example in your book, Normal Life, um, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, which is that, for example, the, uh, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd act as opposed to, you know, which enshrines in, certain types of, um, hate crimes or cer- certain crimes as like hate crimes under mm-hmm. the law, um, you know, actually fundamentally f- did the work of like funneling a lot more resources towards uh, law enforcement and like the prison industrial complex itself. Right. So 
like the, these these structural elements which do tons of violence to the exact groups which the law is then purporting like that the law is like saying one thing about itself basically mm-hmm. um and then the actual sort of like administrative structure around everything else uh shows a very different story right yeah i mean this is the thing that's so hard about legal equality it's like and i think the hate crime law example is like is i think for me, like the, the most like graspable example in so many ways, because it's like to save trans people, we'll add them to the hate crimes law in your state or to try to push for them to be in the hate crimes law, federal law, you know, and then it, it's like give money to local law enforcement and it expands the prosecutor's power to prosecute people and punish them for longer. Right. And those things are just going to keep redounding to the detriment of the same targeted populations. And the biggest source of hate crimes against queer and trans people are police and corrections mm-hmm. officers. So the idea that like, if you expand that, I mean, it's, so I feel like one of the things that's really hard about like when, when mainstreaming happens, like I see this with like the mainstreaming of trans stuff just in the last few years where like suddenly a lot of people like think trans people shouldn't, you know, whatever, just be murdered the ways that before seemed fine. And also like, trans <laughs> characters on TV or whatever, and just, just kind of like changing, you know, further, there's a, there's a narrative that, that something's happening, some kind of liberation is happening for trans people. Right. And that has nothing to do with what's happening to trans people. Like, and I, and it's like, there's a new idea that we're all against this thing. But if you at the exact same time have like deportation expanding and have policing expanding and have the Mm -hmm. wealth gap expanding, then trans people's lives are materially getting worse. And I think this is the same pattern we see with racism becoming illegal in the United States. Like if we were to pull white people in 1940, a lot more of them would be like, yeah, I don't want my kids to go to school with black people. And I don't want to share a water fountain with black people or whatever they're going to say. And then if we pull them and, 2019, they're going to be like, oh no, I'm anti-racist and I love black people. But in terms of like what's actually happened for black people in that, it's like people believe they're not racist or they believe they like trans people. <laughs> like that's the idea that's mainstreamed, but the material conditions of like who's going to school with who and who's got the least to eat and who's breathing the most cancerous air. And you know, like that's not, it doesn't follow, but people believe because it's like this also like liberal hearts and minds stuff where people believe that what everyone thinks about a group is what's happening to that group, but it's also Mm -hmm. like what they just think they think about the group. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, and part of that is about like in the trans context, it's like, if we are like, yes, look, we're going to have like a perfect trans person be a character on a TV show. And like, (laughs) she's white and she's pretty and da, 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 da. And then that has nothing to do with how they're going to feel when they go into McDonald's and there is a black homeless trans woman in that bathroom with them and they get to call the cops like that is right. it doesn't yeah. it, it you know when you the kinds of the advocacy for civil rights tends to lift up like the exceptional person we see this in the immigrant rights context too like who's that valedictorian immigrant mm-hmm. who came here not of her own volition when she was two da, 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 you know and that right. has Through no like, fault of their own you know exactly <laughs> all of that stuff it just is it, it's essential to the legal equality framework because it's like and it's also this thing that i think you know is in Kimberly Crenshaw's work about intersectionality, of course, where it's like, we imagine the person who only has one vector of vulnerability. So she's, right. she's white and she's not swearing and she's trans. And we like, it's so easy to love her and see that she's just like us. But then like, that is just, is, is totally like, um, leaves us when we see somebody who's more stigmatized and also law, the law won't help them because, um, the law can only handle it when there's only one vector, like literally in lawsuits. And so, um, I think there's this like, uh, it's, it's very painful to me, the part where people believe the issues have been resolved. Like that part mm-hmm. is so, so very sad because no civil rights laws are enforced, you know, like employment discrimination and housing discrimination, all these things are like just wildly common. It's just, um, it's just heartbreaking the like depth of this kind of, I think of it as like a spell people are under. It's 
like a broader spell of like, <laughs> yes. you know, the law is all fiction, the nation state is fiction, the border is fiction. Like all of this is just like stuff that was made up and it's like, oh, yeah. so effective at controlling us. No, that's such a good point. And I, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate your writing because like, you know, within the context of disability studies, it's like almost mm-hmm. um, like blasphemy to critique like the Rehabilitation Act or the ADA as being um, potentially limiting to disability limer- liberation and that like, you know, it's sort of, yeah, it might have advanced certain things, but it also sets up this incredible concept of like cost burden, which is now like completely dominated the conversation since the 70s. And it's, you know, it's frustrating because like, you know, I, I feel like constantly you're sort of in this loop of like, okay, you know, I want to critique this thing, but I'm sort of like forced through the politics of like movement representation, I guess, to like give deference to it as like, oh yeah, we're so, ex- we're so happy the ADA exists. Yet, like, it would be better if it, you know, didn't frame everything in the context of work still, right. you know? <laughs> and I love your work because you don't um, fuck around with any of the like deference. And I think that's really important. And, and it, to me, it sort of ties into like a concept that you talk about in your mutual aid book, which is like, we have to ask for a lot that like the sort of preordained limiting of demands is part of this whole like conversion of like mutual aid into charity that that the idea that like we have to make our demands respectable we have to frame our demands um like as you were saying to 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 get grant money not to meet the needs of the population we're trying to address and i I think in a lot of ways the sort of like the the way that that fits into the mythology of like the way to win a battle is through legal rights right and the accumulation of of legal rights and it often just serves to set up like really strict rules for how to avoid um you know the responsibility of being discriminatory whether you're a business or you're an individual you know and and i think like this is something that that I'd love to get into is sort of like how also the the push and pull of like fighting for benefit programs fits into that as well. Because obviously, like, you know, as as you were saying, like a lot of these benefit programs are incredibly powerful in that they structuralize and uphold norms. Well, like easy example uh, here on the death panel, we are <laughs> fully in in uh, favor of repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act with Medicare for all. However, you know, <laughs> we're then also, you know, rhetorically people get for, like forced into the position of, say, like, you know, d- like defending current healthcare law because right. there are other, you know, there are even more austerity minded goons than the austerity minded goons who created the Affordable Care Act um, that like, you know, want to strip even more like s- tiny protections uh, mm-hmm. such as there are away. Right. Sorry. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the situation I think with welfare too. You know, I, a lot of my politicization came through like the 1986 welfare reform period. I grew up on welfare. My mom was an immigrant. I just, you know, I was very aware during that period, like, oh fuck, like if this had existed, um, you know, when I was a kid, things would have been even worse for us and they were already quite horrible. Um, and I, so I became very, I was very dedicated to, you know, growing up and fighting for people to have welfare. That's like, what was central for me and, um, and a huge reason that I um, came to be disillusioned with the gay and lesbian rights movement was I went to work to intern at like gay and lesbian organizations during that period in the mid nineties and none of them were working on welfare. And I was like, wait a minute, you guys <laughs> right. suck. You only care about rich people. But, um, so it's a big part of my whole story, but it was really huge for me as I learned more about welfare and, um, poor relief history to understand that 
if we see poor relief as designed to control and stigmatize poor people and to regulate all laborers and to maintain um, extraction, capitalist extraction, then it's like, how do I have a life where I simultaneously fight for people's benefits, for social security benefits, for welfare, for, you know, whatever benefits I've worked on fighting for people and where I don't imagine that this is our end game. And I think in 1996, part of what happened was that people were like, you know, people were like, we have to defend welfare, but welfare sucks. And it's always sucked. It was designed to like leave out black people and, you know, force women to be married and all this, and it still operates in all those ways. And so, um, and to like, just, you know, say that poor people's reproduction is um, immoral and all this. So I, I, um, I think that what's complicated for me about mutual aid as somebody who has over time developed a very explicitly anarchist politics is that I, um, I wanted to write this book in a way that could help us think about how simultaneously mutual aid projects cause, you know, they, they do this essential survival work. They're an honor map for people in the social movements. They also um, can cause crises for existing state infrastructure because it's mm-hmm. like when we start providing it for ourselves, that is a threat and they realize what a threat that is. So then you sometimes see, you know, um, the response is that they start providing it more. But of course, as you said earlier, they can always just like take it right back. And so how do we say that our goal with this, when we do mutual aid projects, on the one hand, we know like we're not going to reach as many people as potentially a state program could reach. We don't have the same amount of money. We don't have the same infrastructure administratively. Um, but we don't actually just want to try to get them. Our goal isn't just to try to get them to do it because then they'll just stop doing it as soon as we're not a threat or as soon as our movement dies down in any way or as soon as they criminalize us or whatever, or they'll, um, or they'll provide it, but in a way that leaves out undocumented people or leaves out people who don't have an address or whatever, you know, all the things they do. And so how do we, in the section I think you're talking about where I'm writing about like concessions and demands, it's like, how do we have a more complex dynamic here where we're like, yes, it is a sign of our power and um, it is a victory when they concede and give something like an eviction moratorium or like a stimulus check or like expanded unemployment. That is a sign of the potential threat of our disruption. And it's like, if we let go of our fantasy about the mommy daddy state that's someday going to provide for everybody in the way they should, um, it's like, it just means we need to, we need to fuel and power it more. Like we, like, it's like, not mm-hmm. that we then stop because then they'll just take it back and they'll get their eligibility. They'll find ways to kick more people off or whatever it is. But how do we see that as just like, that means we go further. And that the actual end game here for me is that we don't have a United States or a Washington state or whatever it is that is, that is, uh, you know, extracting and then redistributing, primarily redistributing towards rich people, and then very, very, very mildly distributing, redistributing <laughs> something towards poor people through all these eligibility criteria that leave out the same targeted groups that have always been left out. So we move away from that story and instead build um, our mutual aid capacity like so, so much bigger, not bigger in the sense of like one centralized project, but in the sense of like so much proliferation of um, of projects and of methods that use local knowledges that are really centered in people's um, specific communities and specific um, sub communities and, and and so many so much overlapping um, mutual aid work that is deeply in solidarity with each other and that's working on all the tangled problems and that is producing like abundance so that everybody has everything they need um, in part because we're getting rid of the extraction that takes that abundance away from our communities um, and. Um, and so that it's a kind of like starve the state model. And mm-hmm. it's also a, um, a model that imagines for me that I think we're going into a period of many, many extreme disasters um, yeah. more than we already have. And that a lot of work, work mutual aid is going to be essential 
uh, regardless. And one question I get asked a lot about this book is like, isn't your idea of mutual aid putting all the burden on um, poor communities and communities of color and like to do things that the state should do for them? And the answer to that is like, yes, because the state has never done that anyway. Like, yes, it's it's messed <laughs> up that the state takes our taxes and pretends right. it's going to care for us, and then and then in, in, you know in a very clear targeted way ensures the early death of some people and the mm-hmm. you know extended wealth of others. But we're not going to resolve that by not doing mutual aid. We don't have a choice. Right. We've always already been doing mutual aid to survive with each other the whole time. And if we can um, expand that and make more and more people be involved and, um, and help that be a way of mobilizing more and more people to a shared solidarity politics and being um, part of deep transformative work, then we could actually get out from under this piece where the state takes almost everything from us and pollutes our lives and, and towards actually... Um, and, you know, incarcerates our families, et cetera, and towards actually having everybody have everything they need, no strings attached. Um, right. You know, that that's the piece that I think, but it's really hard for people to think past um, the state as like the arbiter of justice. Right. right. I mean, that that's what frustrates me about the, the, the critique, which I, I agree is also quite common of, of mutual aid projects, which is, oh, you're just giving these communities which are already like struggling additional work. Right. And that it's frustrating because that ignores the unpaid labor that goes into securing uh, your benefits otherwise. Right. And it it's it ignores the fact that actually in a lot of ways, like this is a transference of power. Mutual aid is like a seizing of power from the state back to a community and not, you know, not necessarily um, unpaid labor. Right. It's like we why do we talk about like these sort of community oriented projects as being unpaid labor, but no one talks about applying for Social Security disability as being unpaid labor. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're interfacing with the state, it's considered to be like you're jumping through the hoops. Right. And this is your obligation. Um, And I, I think in a lot of ways, like this is why I in particular, like you know, as you were saying, a lot of these projects exist. It's not just like an anarchist idea. This is just the anarchist like word for it, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, but I think mutual aid is like a as like a community practice and the community that's built up around it, I think has like a very strong commitment to, you know, reframing a lot of these processes as being free from work. Right. Which the government does a lot of job to try and reinforce the connection of services and support to work, whether it's you have to have a work history to qualify for SSDI and you need to have those credits. You need to prove that you tried really hard to work before you gave up and got on the dole. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think it was like really eye opening in the process of applying for Social Security disability and like not a single lawyer would take my case because of the system that's set up of like how lawyers are compensated and who's determined to be eligible. Right. And, and of course not a single person ever, um, said to me like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm turning you down and putting all this work onto you. They said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I only get paid if I win and you don't look like you're going to win. Come back if you get cancer. Yes. Come back if you get cancer (laughs) was the most common, um, reply. And ultimately what ended up happening is Artie and I represented me or I represent the, the blind person represented themselves in the hearing. And, you know, we did that with the support of like a legal clinic uh, at Cordozo who was like, okay, we're going to coach you through this. Right. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it really illustrated sort of how deeply within the SSDI system was the process of like marking a body as not being fit for work. Right. And I think mutual mm-hmm. aid in a lot of ways disrupts that sort of flow. And in disrupting that, like gives power back to communities in liberating them from the context of work 
being an eligibility requirement at all. Well, and I think importantly, as is pointed out um, in in your your book, Dean, uh, also you know again creates a lot of opportunities for uh, encouraging. Um, like acts of solidarity or an actual understanding of solidarity because you can, you know, be like Beatrice can have this experience, for example, with SSDI, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, someone else may not, I mean, may not even live to encounter frankly or something, you know, or that, um, unfortunately that's quite common or that's so, you know, or, um, uh, that you know, someone else may have a very different, someone helping, for example, I mean, we do, there's like some stuff where, um, we have a discord server, for example, and that's a community discord server basically. And, uh, you know, people in there like are, there are like people in like four separate countries helping uh, one specific individual, uh, there to like, you know, apply for a social, uh, welfare program in the UK, for example. And none of them, you know, would have to interface with this specific agency, but they can all understand. I think, uh, they can all understand like the, uh, the sorts of like shared struggles that they feel even like internationally in this case. Yeah. And sometimes it's just about securing that one appointment, like that's going to get you the, uh, sit down with the doctor who's then going to give you access to the right clinic you need, which is like, yeah, I, I, I have to say like, I, some, one of my biggest dreams, um, that I've been talking about for years is like, how could we further deprofessionalize legal services? Because yeah. the way yeah. it works now is like, may, you know, if there's, 200 people who all like, you know, contact this, this lawyer at legal aid, or, or like you're talking about the ones who work on contingency for help with their um, benefits claim, you know, only one of them will be taken because like your case is good enough or whatever. And like all these people have, you know, all the ones who do it for free have too many cases possibly do it. And the ones who do it for contingency need it to have very, very, very certain kind of winnable case to take it. And so most people aren't getting this help. And there's like also a million other ways you fall off in between. Like they sent you the paperwork and you can't read it or you don't have an address or all, you know, they all, they deny all the first disability claims, all those pieces for all different kinds of benefits. And this is also true with how housing court works. And there's so many different kinds of like little hearings that poor people mm-hmm. have to constantly be run through. And there's so few lawyers to do them. There's just enough to kind of like make the system look legit. And, and so <laughs> I wonder about this all the time. Like, I think that the way lawyers are trained makes us more likely to, you know, we think we're very important and we have to do it ourselves and we're not part of community-based organizations. And there's all these restrictions on the way legal aid works that makes it unlikely to be ever do any organizing. And so so this has become, it's just like this profession. And it's like, like instead of what we could be doing, which sounds a little bit like what happened to you at the law school clinic that worked with you on the case, but that's kind of exceptional because clinics are tiny and because you two happen to have the skills, the literacy skills to be able to do this yourselves. But like, yeah. what would it look like if we were training whole neighborhoods or whole, you know, faith communities or however people are coming together um, to have there be like trained up advocates who, ha- who are able to handle different parts of this. And then somebody else who takes care of the kids while they're in that meeting together and somebody, somebody mm-hmm. else who feeds everybody. Like, what if the mutual aid piece, like, you know, for me as somebody who is a poverty lawyer and spent time in, you know, disability hearings and welfare hearings and things like that. Like I feel so deeply, they're so violent and there's, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to even get to the hearing. And like, what would it look like if we made sure everybody was accompanied through those processes? Like it's so, it, it's so transformative to think about that. And also what kind of communities we'd be living in if people felt accompanied through that, how that would just change everything. It's so deep that, that level of violence and abandonment. And, and I'm sure you all have seen this stuff, but like, you know, First of all, the idea that you have a hearing before your welfare benefits are terminated you know, comes from this famous due process case called Goldberg versus Kelly. And people are like, this is this huge win for 
you know, welfare rights. But in reality, this established that you get this hearing. And in places like New York City, where there's tons and tons and tons of hearings, these hearings are on average like less than two minutes long. Right. So that right. means that somebody had a four hour hearing with a lawyer and somebody else had a hearing that was 15 seconds long, you know, or they never even spoke. And that's the person who jumped through the 80 million hoops of paperwork to get a hearing. And right. so to me, like, just knowing how outrageous, this is similar to the way the hearings are here in Washington state, we have legal financial obligations where if you get prosecuted, you then owe the state money for court fees. And so when you get out of prison, they've been collecting interest and then you, then they can re-imprison you at any time if you, if you can't pay them. And those hearings are like 30 seconds or an hour long or a minute long. So like you just got out of prison, you finally got a place to live, you got your kid back and now they're like, oh, we're putting you away because you didn't pay these God. monthly fees like this. So there's so many things like this. Right. And so I'm just, you know, my question is like, um, while these systems are still in place, which I hope we, you know, are dismantling them as quickly as possible, we could definitely gum up the works pretty bad if everybody had support <laughs> and, and, um, advocacy in them. And if we didn't let anybody miss that paperwork and if, you know, like it really, the system requires most people just like the criminal system requires that most people be pleading out and not have good representation and right. not make a fight. And if, if there was, if, if lawyers could stop using their kind of one case at a time ethics and instead do a plea strike, the, the entire criminal system would come to a screeching halt because it can't right. do all those trials. Right. So, I mean, there's so many ways we could imagine moving away from a legal system um, and administrative systems that process people one by one towards their loss. And instead where we're organizing large numbers of people affected by these same, you know, a lot of the same people, a lot of people have a housing court problem who also are trying to get disability, who also currently are having problems with general assistance, you know, like all of this is so, you know, it's the same, it's the same populations that are, you know, when you look at the stats about how many people are like eligible for food stamps, but don't get mm -hmm. them, like, you know, how many people are eligible for different kinds of poor relief because they are that poor, but the system effectively keeps people out with like applications that are impossible and um, the eligibility verification procedures that are impossible. Like, it just feels like this is the, a side of mutual aid that I wish was much bigger. And I think it's, it's pretty deep in our current world, how like poverty is not sexy, like mm -hmm. the social movement issues that people are excited to talk about on social media, like poverty is really like, like a missing word in yeah. that, um, that I think is like complex and, um, and, and related to what you're talking about, about like the valorization of people who work, like so many movements mm -hmm. still only valorize their constituents by saying that they work hard. And that is such a, so deeply ableist and, and ageist and, and just like anti-poor and, um, and, and so much like we deserve the right to be exploited. Like I just, it's such a deep, like heartbreaking, <laughs> um, message. And one more thing I want to say about that, like, I also see a current trend in like, I, you know, social media leftist stuff of like, everybody should get paid. So it's like, if you're doing any kind of activism, you should be getting paid and who's going to pay me. And like, I went to um, this store that has like gender neutral clothing in LA, like, you know, a year ago. And they had like enamel pins that said like, oh, pay boy. me. And <laughs> on the one hand, like, you know, I can see how like we get tokenized and forced to do million presentations and never paid and all of that. Like, that's true. That's the way that white supremacy and ableism and transphobia and all these things work. But on the other hand, like, oh my God, like unpaid work is what makes social movements work and it's like it shouldn't right. even we shouldn't even we should have a different word besides work because it's not the exploitative alienated work of paid jobs it's like we're connecting with each other and helping each other survive and like share beautiful ideas and yeah. build something else and so like the idea that like I shouldn't do anything unless I'm getting paid for it means I will never do anything that rich people didn't design for me and like I see <laughs> I talk to like, social movement lawyers about this all the time like they want to like 
you know, get paid at their lawyer job. They don't want to go to the meetings at night of the grassroots group where nobody's paid, where they're that are working on the same thing, but with more radical ideas. And I'm like, you have to show up there, not just the time you want to present your ideas and what you're doing, but like every week, if you can, like, if that's within your, like this, that's not paid work is not more important than unpaid work. It's just more compromised, you know, like, so anyway, I'm really struggling with this. I see this and I talk to a lot of younger people about this, this, like I should get paid for anything I do for social justice story like I see it on campuses where students are then just like so co-opted by the university and like aren't doing any autonomous organizing because mm-hmm. they're all they as soon as they see a powerful activist emerging they're like oh yeah why don't you come work as an RA why don't you come work as a why don't you give diversity talks <sighs> at our blah 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 you mm-hmm. know like it's they just like capture them and then the person feels really powerful because they are like a paid professional and they're like 19 and that's really exciting you know mm-hmm. right. it's like now you're gonna go like have a career like this and never have done <laughs> autonomous work. Well, which also I'm sure is one of the reasons why the nonprofit model is so effective at mm-hmm. siphoning, uh, you know, political energies away. Right. I meet so many people who are like, I'm like, so what, what, what interests you? And they're like, I want to, I want to change the world. I want to be the executive director of a nonprofit. Wow. <laughs> Literally that. I'm like, well, what would that nonprofit do? What issues interest you? What topic? Like, it's just like, that's it. And I'm like, right. that is a really good barometer, you know? Yeah. It's like the only uh, priority is actually to uh, establish the outward image of, of being somehow involved in this work and that that is primary to like, what is the work that I'm going to do accomplishing? You know what I mean? It's, it's funny too, because I, I think especially within, you know, the disability space, there is the the serious factor of the attention economy too, because so many disabled people rely on crowdfunding and fundraising efforts that, you know, the, the absence of more money follows the person programs basically means that like, if you're disabled and you want to survive, you've got to get really good at a couple things. One is you have to be like pretty good at fundraising Two, You have to like learn how to be incredibly persistent. If you're a medicalized disabled person in like, you know, the follow-up and care coordination process and, and these types of things like, yeah, technically there are private services, I guess, that exist where you can hire an advocate. Right. But, but ultimately like, you know, we don't hear about the, uh, poor disabled people who like can't even get that service or who can't even get on disability because they, you know, can't afford to stop working long enough to apply. And all these like various controls, which exist are like, not only tools of state violence, but tools to undermine solidarity too. And I, I think, you know, put people in a position where they're like in opposition to each other rather than whether it's facilitated that they can like collaborate and help each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. And I mean, the problem with crowdfunding, which I, of course you know, I participated in and I'm always crowdfunding Same. for like some, you know, somebody's getting out of prison and they, and they, and they need housing or whatever. Of course we should use whatever tools we have, but it's a popularity contest. Like that's, what's mm-hmm. like so right. heartbreaking about it. It's like, yeah, some people, People are a lot more excited about than others and like that is just not what we believe in as a move as a movement like it's just like everyone's well-being is is essential and nobody is disposable and so this is not a sustainable way to like and or it's like this issue is popular right now or this thing happened in the media so people care about this type of person for a minute like this is not a good um this is it feels so neoliberal in, in the worst ways yeah yeah definitely. yeah i mean i think it's telling that the first question you often hear people ask when something happens or when something like is publicized is where do I go to donate? Who do I go to donate for? Who is the right reputable organization to donate to? And it's also about deservingness too. Yeah. 
too. Cause it'll be yeah. like, the person will be like, well, what was this person in prison for? <laughs> and I'm like, right, well, uh, exactly. they're about to be homeless. <laughs> yeah. Like who cares? It's not your right. You aren't entitled to know what they were charged with. That is just a, like, those are just words on a piece of paper that relate to, as you were saying, laws, which are imaginary technically. So right. is their story tragic enough to deserve my $5? Right. Or right. are they like one of the non, non, nons and therefore mm-hmm. like I can, you know, know that I'm giving my money to them and not sending a, you know, potentially dangerous criminal out to, I don't know, like do crime. Yeah. <laughs> and this is related to what you're talking about, about like people, you know, systems getting rid of cash benefits and only having vouchers mm-hmm. um, and all these pieces, which is like, you know, we uh, have to make sure you're not going to spend this money on drugs and all this, you know, this whole intense. Uh, yeah, it's so it's so messed up and it's so paternalistic. Um, I mean, actually, to this point, I think that's one of the reasons why I know it may seem uh, I mean, I don't know, at, at first blush or maybe to or maybe to like um, some listeners, it may seem like the sort of. Uh, the meandering that we did in this between talking about mutual aid and then talking about sort of the limits of, uh, of, you know, like individual rights based, uh, legal arguments or, or legal movements, for example, uh, litigation, like how to put it like bourgeois litigation strategies, (laughs) sort of, um, like, you know, at first blush, I feel like this may seem like separate topics, but I think that's one of the reasons why the, um, you know, again, if I can sort of return to the the your earlier book, Normal Life, um, I think I feel like you really uh, articulate. Let me put it this way: this, this is going to be extremely weird, maybe, um, if you would allow me to read something from it. But I, I was I was revisiting your book um, last night, and I came across um, this thing which struck me sort of. Uh, one of the closest things I've read to something that could be called like a death panel mission statement, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Um, would you mind if I read something from your book? I can't wait to hear what it is. <laughs> Great. Um, so this is from chapter four, um, which is called Administrating Gender. Um, the book, the Dean's earlier book is called Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics and the Limits of the Law. Um, and uh, I have I've, this is sort of a shortened version of the quote, but. Here it is, quote, as we shift our understanding of power from a focus on individual discrimination to a focus on the norms that govern population management, we become interested in the legal systems that distribute security and vulnerability at the population level and sort the population into those whose lives or those whose lives are cultivated and those whose lives are abandoned, imprisoned or extinguished. We turn toward the realm of administrative law and the administrative agencies that are responsible for the bulk of government activities that impact the distribution of life chances. An understanding of power that looks at the distribution of life chances created by population-level interventions, ergo homeless shelters, prisons, jails, foster care, juvenile uh, punishment, public benefits, immigration documentation, health insurance, social security, driver's licensing, and public bathrooms, draws our attention to how the categorization of people works as a key method of control. Population interventions rely on categorization to sort the population rather than targeting individuals based on behaviors or traits. What characteristics are used for such categorization and how those categories are defined and applied creates vectors of vulnerability and security. Many of the administrative processes that vulnerable people find themselves struggling through are contests about just such categorizations. So that's that. Thank you for that, Dean. (laughs) I mean, I think part of what I, part of, I think one of my interventions in critical race theory, which is such a big um, influence on me is that I was like, 
okay, we can see the limits of civil rights law. And also let's talk about, and like, and we can be upset that that equality law, like the framework of equality law is supposed to be about getting a hate crimes law passed or getting an anti-discrimination law passed. And we know those things don't work the way we've been told. But what if we are going to look at law, let's look at administrative systems and administrative agencies because um, that's where life chances are distributed. And I think that's really interesting right now, like at this time, right before the election when we're having this conversation, because the, you know, elections are like, for me, like this sideshow. I mean, obviously they matter a lot, <laughs> especially they matter because um, those people determine who, what's going to happen from those administrative agencies. But it's right. like, you know, people take um, civics class in school and they learn that like there's three branches of government and that, like, it's like, what's going on in Congress and what's going on with the president and what's going on with the courts. And like the bulk of government, of course, is administrative agencies and they are enforcing all the things that are going to determine like whether or not you can breathe the air in your neighborhood and whether or not your car has a seatbelt and whether or not you can be qualified as a disability for benefits and um you know what your school is like and all of those things and those that whole level of governance is like invisible to people like people right. don't really think about it they don't know the names of any of those agency heads in their state or in their um or, or in the country they're just i mean under trump there's been more drama around those people so there's a little bit more but like the level at which like where it's at is hidden and like like almost nobody knows what the federal register is that that's where proposed rules are and that's where you find out that they were about to change right. it and take away you know everybody who has this kind of wheelchair having to be covered or everybody who gets this medication like they just it's literally so invisible and i think also that even lawyers and even um yeah that there's a kind of sense of just like thinking that like the real law happens at the supreme court or really happens, <laughs> you know in congress and it's like the the there's just so much missing from that story in the same way that we would be concerned about what the criminal law makes criminal, but not what the police are doing, you know, like, and so right. as somebody who's generally just like divested from the idea that like the law happens the way it, we are told it happens, but also who's trying to, like, you know, my theory of change here. And I think this is more visible in the mutual aid book than in normal life is like, I, I really, you know, it's like, we're, if, if we know that changing laws doesn't help, then of course we want to first ask what's what are legal systems doing to us instead of what are they saying about themselves? That's like the first move. Right. But the real move is like um, getting people to stop waiting for those things to work out and right. like instead do the only thing we have is actually mass movements because like our episode has all the money and all the guns and all we have is people power and what it looks like to actually organize huge numbers of people to like make it impossible for policing to keep happening or to, um, uh, you know, stop extraction, to stop oil pipelines, whatever the thing, all the mm -hmm. things that we have to do. And that feels, um, yeah, in the election moment, it feels so strong, especially because like, so like poverty isn't visible in the election or like the things that impact people the most so often are not visible unless social movements push them to the surface and then we finally get like, you know, a few words, right? Like, but right. there's this feeling that like, Elections tend to be about like the hot button scapegoaty issues. Like we hate immigrants, we hate gay people, or we hate abortion, or we love <laughs> abortion. Like those things. Whereas like the the running thread of all of the of electoral politics, regardless of who's in whatever office, is like U.S. military imperialism and like extreme capitalist extraction. Like those things just like can't be touched somehow, or like they're consistent, so consistent on all among all elected officials. Like anyway, it just feels like a particularly hard. I think in these moments that like just deep level of, um, of distortion from like what politics is and, and what it's 
narrated is and how it's made into kind of like a celebrity sideshow, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, I can't think of any more uh, appropriate conversation to have had as what will <laughs> probably be, I think, the final public uh, episode released before the election. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, I feel like so much of like what what the project is right now is to like seize power through destroying illusions of powerlessness. And I, I think that like mutual aid work is a really good way to do that. Um, particularly in the face of like such inaction from federal state and local governments. Um, maybe it's sort of as like a final topic, if you have a moment, um, we can do sort of like a, uh, a more practical question, which is like maybe what's a good way, like, let's say I've never done mutual aid before. What's like a good way to get involved in doing that? Yeah. I mean, the, probably the one of the easiest ways to start is to find existing mutual aid projects in your area. There's a, um, a, a newish resource called mutual aid hub, um, that's online. So there's like, you go to a map of, I think it has the United States and Canada on it, but that, I know maybe that one's the world. I can't remember, but, um, th- so those are really useful, like to find like just to find resources. Um, I think also there's also a new map of like abolition groups all over the U S and Canada that I recommend as like another way. And most abolition groups do mutual aid, like direct, you know, um, support to prisoners inside or people coming out. Um, I think also like another, one other way into mutual aid is just like, what's the thing that's bothering me that I have an idea about how I could support people. So like Mm. people who are just like, Oh, like my, my friend is in prison and I have an idea about how, um, you know, I keep hearing about all things that are happening to the people in that prison and we could have people sending in this or we could have, um, people supporting, um, them, their kids to get rides, to go visit them on visiting days or I mean, not relevant during COVID, but you know, um, or supporting people to have money to do the video visits or whatever, like that kind of like, you just know something's happening or like in your neighborhood, you're like, what's happening for the old people? Are they able to get their groceries or, um, right. you know, what's, uh, what's whatever it is in your direct community or like what, you know, what is it that young people in my neighborhood need right now, now that school's not on and there's, you know, people are trapped with their scary mean families in their houses like is there anything that we could be providing in the neighborhood that's covid safe that could help people be more well like it's just kind of like and then doing it i think a key piece of this is like just not doing it as a one-person show like the whole thing about mutual aid is it's like i have this interest and then i'm not building an empire about it and i'm not trying to be the only one that's like a recipe for burnout it's a recipe for being you know dominating ways that you not don't know you're being and leaving out people you don't know you're leaving out because any one person just doesn't have the whole picture instead it's like how do I use my urgency about this to find other people who have urgency about this and to let the project change and develop according to our shared wisdom and Mm -hmm. potentially develop. And maybe it splits into three different projects or maybe lots of different people are doing about that. And it's, I don't have to be threatened by that. That's actually really cool. Or like, how do I, how am I seeking more and more connection to other people who care about this and to other work like this? And then also just not reinventing the wheel. Like anything any of us think of that might be cool to do. Somebody's probably tried it. And so it can be really great to be like, oh, let's try to have our online request form look like theirs. They were really smart. They put this stuff in that we didn't think to put in, or they do this scheduling for the ride giving in this way. Like, oh, maybe we could try it that way. Like just getting, letting ourselves be influenced by others and influence them. And like, oh, these people are doing it in a way that actually is better for deaf people than these people are doing it. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. How'd they do it? And then maybe they can influence those people to add that element of the work or, or enhance that piece of, um, of accessibility, you know, just how can we basically like go into this seeking to build a lot of relationships and, and find out new things about the issue that we didn't know about and like expand the work and have more people get into it instead of going into it being like someday this will turn into my 
you know, my nonprofit that I will run. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm going right. to become place. the Susan G. Komen of grocery <laughs> delivery. Exactly. I want to be the czar of, you know, yeah. Prison yeah. transportation. <laughs> like I've not made it until I have some sort of sponsorship deal with Dannon and get like 1.8 million uh, caps out that have my organization's <laughs> name on it because you know that's important for movement building is yoga. Yes, and I won't do anything that threatens that, so I'm going to keep with my you know conservative messaging, etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, and I, and I think it just sort of speaks to something that you talk about in the book, which is like maybe this is a good final note is like that none of this can happen in vacuum and we both can't limit our demands. Um, but we also like cannot be uh, greedy and let austerity brain infect every uh, single aspect of our lives. You know, there's like a really important feedback loop that happens between protest movements, mutual aid and projects for political education. And like all of those um, interests are not competing. They, uh, they align and they have solidarity and they can build strength and power from collaboration and, you know, refusing to ascribe to the incentivization to professionalize work and become, you know, the celebrity arbiter of whatever, you know, cause you've decided to, uh, to dawn, you know what I mean? In an ideal world, people are in all of them. So it's like, this, like mm-hmm. it's people, you know, people are doing mutual aid project. That's really like their political home, but they also like are in the streets for this, if that makes sense for them or they're also, yeah. you know, they're, and I think the other thing about this is like, you know, the message of liberal rights politics is deeply anti-intersectional. It's like, mm-hmm. we can yeah. win on this. We can, we're going to back any politician who's with us on divesting from fossil fuels, even though they are also anti-abortion or are they whatever, you know, like we're just going to, we're, we're single <laughs> issue. Right. Um, and, and we're, and we're, we're, we're for us and we're going to take this one issue to, to the, to the finish line. And it's, so it's anti-solidarity work, right? It's anti-intersectional, it's anti-solidarity. And the reverse is what we're trying to build, which is how we build real power, which is that like, we're all for everyone. And we're all yeah. constantly being like, oh, wow, we left those people out. Oh, my God, I didn't think of that. I, you know, and I see this happening in our movements right now, like from the Black yeah. Lives Matter policy platform from 2016, including issues related to Palestine liberation, which is so risky in our political context to, you know, just this ongoing. I see I, I see a really significant shift in short periods of time of people getting um, trans justice principles and disability justice principles in a lot of places where they weren't yeah. like three years ago. And so to me, like that's the move. That's what builds our power, which is the opposite of if you're trying to get elite status, you want to be anti-intersectional so that you can be branded and not threaten anybody mm-hmm. at the funder's office who doesn't, who, you know, hates Palestinians or whatever <laughs> like that, you know, or who thinks it's kind of weird when you include prisoners or whatever. So like, that's the move. The move is to um, to, to it, and I think that this is being talked about a lot in today's world as like not doing respectability politics. Like that's yeah. a great way to frame it too. Um, but just moving towards like solidarity is the most important thing. Standing with the people who are at the greatest risk is the most important thing. Um, mm-hmm. And bringing everyone along instead of um, this kind of like single issue, um, you know, uh, limited type of approach to the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, especially because um, you know, not not to bring it back to. Um, not, not to bring up Medicare for all again, for example, but uh, we do talk quite a lot about healthcare on the death panel. But um, you know, I think like there, there is uh, it's it's like an important thing to be to be really aware of in terms of keeping it uh, like keeping aware of that and and accountable to that, so that for example, people who are let's say on the more like policy reform minded left um, mm-hmm. don't don't start to think that well, you know, it's. Uh, 
it's not really it's probably will be a little bit of a hard sell to get like x or y group uh added so let's um you know maybe it's too difficult to include uh like long-term care Mm -hmm. or long-term services and supports in medicare for all for example which leaves out a huge amount of uh disabled people in the united states and and everywhere who like need like who need these things to to live right right like um, in-home services and supports are not optional for a lot of the people that need them people, yeah. and very few people that need them actually have access and so them. it's yeah it's it's i think it's just like so important to remain like aware and uh vigilant of exactly what you're saying that like yeah. we, we win by working together and working for like the interests of the material interests of everyone, right? We don't win by demanding so much more. Like yeah. instead right. of like, you know, we like choke off our demand before we've even uttered it with, right. with some elite naysayer in mind. I mean, exactly. what, how depressing, because you're always going to get less than you demand in the concessions. So if you mm-hmm. start low, if you low ball it, they're going to like really low ball it. You know, we have to be like, yeah, I, I, I so appreciate your example about leaving out. Um, long-term care. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of our biggest issues is you absolutely cannot push forward any disruption to the health finance system that does not include accounting for the most extreme case. And, um, I think it's been something that's been considered politically impossible for decades now. You saw it in the independent living movement. You know, people were seeking community inclusion by saying like, well, see, I'm a good disabled person that wants to get a good job, you know? Mm, yep. So Even having a jobs demand in any platform is kind of the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Dean, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a huge pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Um, and so please, glad to meet you all. I hope someday we get to hang out in person. I just love to talk to you forever. Yes. <laughs> likewise. And any, any time, you know, if you just wake up in the middle of the night and you're mad, let us know you're always welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your podcast. I think it's such an incredible resource. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so you can, uh, pick up a copy of Dean's book at Verso. We'll put a link to that in the episode description, but we will also link to Dean's earlier book, which is from, uh, the second edition, I think is from 2014 and it's uh, a really good read. So Arnie and I both heavily recommend. Well, I think with that, we'll, we'll call it a day. Dean, thank you again. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>